Hello, and you are most welcome to episode 195 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming and a member of the Dice Tower Network. My name's Ronan, and I am your only host this time around. I am not to wrangle anyone else in to help me. So it's going to be a review show, but it's going to be a review show with a slight difference in that I was looking at the games that I've played recently, and I had six games, and they fit relatively with a bit of a squeeze and a squint neatly into two groups of three so i thought i'd do two mini pit fights if you remember that format that we do sometimes we take some games of something common and we compare them to each other and then we come out with a ranking so rather than like ranking six or eight as we used to do i'm going to do two sets of three and the first half is definitely going to be the the bigger half of focus on the bigger games it's going to be about three I've been really struggling to categorise this, but they're all fantasy themed. They've all got a map in which you play a character and you travel around and you're exploring. So fantasy exploring mappy games, good. And the second three are all solo only games. I've been doing a few night shifts and being tired and stuff and not being able to see people and not by myself at three in the morning. So I've played three solo games, all pretty new actually. So I'm going to give you the rundown through them. Let's kick straight in. The three adventure games which we're going to talk about to start with are the first one is Skyrim, the adventure game, obviously a massive IP from the whole uh, Elder Scrolls computer game setting. It's from Modifius Entertainment. There are four designers, or there's about 200 people credited in the rulebook for helping out. It says 60 to 120 minutes per game session. <laughs> really, each game session is as long as you want it to be. The game is structured into two overarching campaigns of three sort of chapters each. But for each chapter, I would say it'll take several hours to do a chapter. And and that varies as well, depending upon how focused you are in doing the main quest that will actually get you along. And you don't actually know what you're doing for the main quest, but will kick you through the story. How much you do side quests and level up and how successful and how lucky you are and stuff like that. So a game length is really a bit tricky for Skyrim, but... They said 60 to 120 minutes. I think they were trying not to scare people off by saying like 6 to 12 hours. But anyway, it's for wonderful players and it's cooperative. And you're in the world of Elder Scrolls and you're in Skyrim. And each of the players gets a hook, gets a character. And you've been betrayed in some way and it's linked to an old group that you were affiliated with. Actually on a different continent and you ran away to Skyrim. And this is on the first card. These aren't spoilers. And each of you gets yourself in your own sort of mini little situation. And you make a simple binary choice and then that takes you through. And all the way through, as you do any of these story quests, it will often give you these two choices or these two possibilities or a success and a fail. And there's branching ways you can go through each of the chapters of the two campaigns. The two campaigns are linked, but they are split apart. So when you play through a chapter to the second chapter, the third chapter, your, your stuff is consistent and stays together. When you split to the second campaign, it all resets in a kind of a funky way. And what you're doing is you are going around, and like I said, there are these world quests that you can do, which will affect the whole world. You get personal quests by exploring, and there's a main storyline, and there's branching storylines. And you have an unknown goal. An unknown, that was, that is the unknown goal? An unknown goal you're attempting to achieve when you start the game. So that's Skyrim. The next one is World of Warcraft, Wrath of the Lich King, a pandemic game. I'm not going to be calling that from anymore. I'm going to be calling it something, but not that. 
It's Seaman Games. Again, it's got four designers, but actually Matt Leacock is listed as a designer, but it's heavily based on the pandemic system, and that is definitely acknowledged all the way through. 45 to 60 minutes to play the game. 60 plus, I'd say, and one to five players. Once again, each of the players, and this also is cooperative, is a character. You're a character from within the world of Warcraft games and lore and all the rest of it, and you have a special power. And what you're going to be doing is you're going to be moving around this map off a certain part of, I'm going to say Azeroth. I don't know if that's the right name, but anyway, a, a world. And there are going to be undead appearing in various locations. And you're going to be tempted to control how many undead are out because if too many come out, the place gets overrun. But also, you're going to be completing these three quests. There's three coloured areas. There's red, there's purple, and there's yellow. Each has a quest within them. But as a group, you have to complete these quests by rolling dice and adding cards to them while managing the undead coming out all the time and spawning. And eventually you'll unlock the big quest, which is in the central area, which is the Lich King Citadel subscription. Ice crown, maybe. And then when you go in there, you've got a longer quest you've got to do while still being worried about what's going on on the rest of the board. And if you manage to complete that final quest, you've won. If you get overrun or if you lose your health points, if any of the adventures lose all their health points, then the team has lost. And also if the deck runs out, if you run out of time to do this and the Lich King has arisen and taken over the whole world. The final game is not a cop, it's competitive and it's called Vindication. It's published by Orange Nebula Designer, it's Mark Neidlinger. 45 to 150 minutes. <laughs> That's not very helpful as a guide, is it, to how long it takes? Because it takes two to five players and there are various modules within the game and it can be super quick or perhaps you can add different things and it can take you quite a while longer. Similar to Skyrim in a way, in this one you're washed ashore. It's almost like it's it's previous to where you start Skyrim. You're washed ashore and there's sort of an empty grid map which has got hexes and triangles on and the hexes are spaces where different bases and locations are going to be uncovered and the triangles in between them is where the adventurers are going to move around and at the end of the day what you're trying to do is score the most victory points and it is very much a competitive game as you go through you'll unlock different locations you're going to collect companions you're going to collect cubes as attributes and you're going to use them to collect more cards and unlock more powers to score vp and it pretty much vindication at the end of the day is a set collection game with lots of different ways of scoring points, but is a race against your other washed up, wretched human beings, and you're all tempted to become vindicated, but there's different ways in which you can win the game. So, first impressions through the rule book and starting up for each of the games. For Skyrim, the game is wide open. You start, you're given this thing you can try and do. Quite often, if you try and do it too early, without either resources, which will help you mitigate a role you have to pass, because everything in this game is about passing a role in order to get success and move on and advance yourself and become more successful. Before that, really, you can go anywhere and you can do anything. Now, the whole map is laid out. You can see all the locations. I know vaguely enough about Skyrim that those locations are the locations within the game itself. But when you go to each of these places, you can really encounter almost anything. There are some indications there are cities in which you're likely to encounter. We can choose to encounter city quests and there are markets which are available when you've got stuff to be able to buy things. There are different levels of dungeons you can go to. There are sometimes uh, countryside encounters which you can get, which could be anything from aiding someone to a giant just turning up. 
And trust me, running within this game is very much a valid option, especially in any of the, the earlier parts of it. And although you're given direction by that story, you're going to be then pulled in lots of other directions because the game sort of constantly puts out these, I'm going to, I'll call them failure markers. And, and as quests that are in play collect too many failure markers, they get discarded. So the game constantly churns along the story itself and how you choose to keep up with the story and where you choose to go and what threads you choose to follow is dictated by you. And again, I'm going to say it one more time, how much you adhere to the main quest line in Skyrim is down to you and how much you just want to faff around and explore and get really cool before you go after anything. Once you are more powerful and you do attempt to advance things along, usually, are those dice rolls involved, usually you can do it much more successfully. Starting off with... Oh... I missed a line there in my notes of Skyrim. It's a very important line. <laughs> Skyrim's a big IP. We know this. It's not a cheap game. It's got lovely components. It's done a lot of things right. The rule book is an absolute shocker. It is awful for a mechanically very, very simple game. It has repetitions. It has omissions. It's very, very poorly structured. I mentioned for a reason those 200 people in the credits for Skyrim, not one of them is down there as the rulebook compiler or editor or I'm responsible for this rulebook and I'm not surprised no one put their name down for it. This huge an IP that's going to get attraction to people who don't usually play tabletop games, surely the rulebook was one of the number one considerations. You've got to wade through that to get to it. It makes it seem intimidating when you start playing the game. It's actually very simple. You move, stuff happens, you roll some dice, you do good or you do bad. That's that's almost all the mechanisms in there. Okay, moving on to Vindication. This isn't a poor rule book, but with Vindication, what they've done is they've put lots of art and theme into this. And the art is lovely and the theme is fine. In terms of what you're doing in the game, it's almost entirely bloat. It does tie it together, though. It does allow for you to explain the game at least and teach it. And when you're going to a fort, you're getting stronger. And when you're going to sort of like a, a, a merchant of mounts, if you like, your speed's going to increase. And it does give you a thread that pulls it together. So it works in that way. Each of the actions are very, very simple. The weirdest thing to get your head around really is a strange cube management system in which it's kind of like that element of Terra Mystica where your cubes can be, I don't know if that helps, Guy Project, three different levels where in this one, if they're the lowest level, they're useless to you. The middle level you're using constantly for various things, they become your attributes, they become your resources, they become your influence on the map, which you can grab locations, and when you control them, you earn points if anyone goes to them, and getting key locations can be important depending on how you choose how to play. But and then there's sort of like a higher level altogether that will save, if you go into a battle with a monster, will save one of your champions from dying, or it will allow you to uh, look at more cards and stuff like that. That is the weirdest thing in there. I really can't see any thematic link to that. The rest of it, they've at least tried to tie it together, despite the fact that really, it is just a pure Euro. And if it did have one of a multitude of other themes, it would all still make sense. In a way, it does take one or two plays to get past the theming and the presentation and the ideas they're in to realise, ah, I'm playing a race and it's about set collection, mostly. And yes, I'm getting all these thematic powers and stuff, but really what I'm doing is playing a tight Euro race. 
So, but Vindication is is it's a pleasant product to open up and read and play as long as you don't mind spending twenty minutes extra because you've read the lore about the start figure marker. It, it's it's a figure and she's she's part of the world. She's not actually doing anything within the game, but you know who she is. And then there's loads of other plastic bits that come with it that have very little to do with the game, or sometimes none, nothing to do with the game. Anyway, World of Warcraft pandemic, well, yeah, all that has got a strange problem when you first start playing it in that this is a familiar rule set because it's based on pandemic, but almost everything is slightly different. That makes it difficult to teach people who've played any amount of pandemic. What you're doing is you're learning exceptions to rules that you know, and often you will just default back to what you're used to. So you do have to be aware, no, that's a slightly different, this is slightly different. The, the way that cards work are slightly different. The fact that there's no colours to cubes, it's just ghouls go and come out. They still come out in a location. They still overrun, but they overrun in a very different way. And they create bigger ghouls that will then start haunting you around the map and moving every turn, attempting to hit you, and you're dealing with hit points and stuff. And it's got that weird thing of a little bit of knowledge is dangerous because you think you know, and you, every time you make an assumption about a rule, you're likely to be very slightly wrong. The thing about it also, that leading in from just starting playing, is that the demands on you and how to play well is very different to base pandemic. If you try and play this the way you would base pandemic, you will lose quite quickly and it can spiral out of control. It's a pretty tough co-op and you need to realize that although it's similar, your priorities are slightly different and you're making slightly different decisions about how close you want people to be to each other. Movement works differently and the whole group think and pattern is going to have to be adjusted to what you're actually playing now and not the pandemic that you might be tricked into thinking you're playing. It's kind of odd that Wrath of the Lich King is so tough because everything seems easy. Everything you're trying to do seems easy. The map is quite compact. You can move around it relatively quickly, certainly compared to pandemic. The top half of the deck is seeded with the stronghold cards of the player deck. And when they come out, you can plop a stronghold anywhere you like on the map, and then you can move to it from anywhere for one action. And that allows you to zip around the place and teleport, and you're much more mobile than you're used to being in a pandemic. Also, you're drawing the player cards, and now they're not linked to locations, and you're not having to get them all together to make a cure. It's not like that. What they do is they boost your actions, so there'll be extra move cards or... When you want to actually clear off ghouls, you don't just automatically clear from where you are. You roll dice and you're hoping to get hits and shields because if any are left alive, they'll hit you back again. If the Lich King's in the area where you are and you're attempting a combat, that he'll hit you for an extra spare one just to, you know, wake you up a bit, remind you that he's actually in the game. So you've got cards that will defend against hits or will boost your attacks or you've got heals that will keep your hit points up. And the, the dual use of them is that, yes, they make everything easier, but they're also what you can add to quests. And when everyone's together in a quest location, there'll be one in the red, one in the yellow, and one in the purple. When someone's questing, everyone else can help them. It's true with every action. Someone's fighting. If you're with them, you can help them with an attack card. So it's tempting to spend the cards to help each other out. And I believe you do need to do that to play well. But equally, if you spend too many of them on questing or on attacking, you're going to lose the balance of the other bit of the game that's pulling at you, which is control the ghouls. Or do the quest. And if you forget either, it's a real teetering point. You're on this tight wire. So the movement feels easy, 
but it never seems that you're in the right place at the right time, which I guess is good. There's no exploration, though, either, and there's nothing sort of unexpected comes up on the map. You can see everything. Yes, the ghouls will come out, but everything's so connected. If they're here or there, it doesn't make... I mean, if they're one corner or the other, it makes a difference. If they're in one location to the next location, it's not as tough. There's not as many dead ends and and inaccessible locations as you would get in a normal pandemic. Skyrim, it's not quite as easy to move around everywhere on the map, but it is quite brisk because everything's quite interlinked. You can also pay some money once you get some to upgrade to a horse, which makes you a little bit quicker. The idea of the movement, though, is although in pandemic you can see everything, where everything is and, and what you want to do when you get there. Like I said with Skyrim, you don't know what's there. You have an idea what's there. Like even a city, I only get city events and they'll tend to give me quests or little bonuses if I do well. Out in the wilderness, it's a bit more random. I could be helping someone like a Sarah encountering something. What is really clever is that there's a dungeon system and there are tiered levels of dungeons. And for each chapter within the campaign, also the dungeons are tiered. And so a level one dungeon in chapter one is not as tough as a level one dungeon in chapter two. Not only that, as the characters progress, if they go into a dungeon and they defeat monsters that are a lower level than them, those monsters are kicked out of the game. So a level one dungeon at the beginning of chapter one is easier than it is at the end of chapter one when the players have progressed and the monsters progress. Now, I'm reliably informed that that is something taken directly out of the video game in that it will respond to you, it will see how tough you are, and it will give you monsters roughly that are comparable to your level. It doesn't do that in the other encounters, in like the wilderness encounters. You will come across crazy things and run away, and you'll come across really easy things that don't give you enough of reward to get you where you're going once you've, you're leveled up. So the dungeons actually is a really clever, clever system. It's only a small deck of cards. I think it's seven or eight for each level of dungeon for each of the campaigns. But because it's tiered from level zero, level one, two, just one level one, one level two, one level three, and the level zeros will go and the level one will go, you have an idea what you're going to face, but they still get shuffled in together. You don't know exactly what it's going to be. And the rewards and the challenge move along with you. I think it's a fantastic system for that. One of the problems with that whole exploration, the cleverness of the dungeons, the excitement in seeing what you're going to encounter is that you've got no mitigation on your dice early. And everything boils down to initially rolling three dice and hoping to get a certain sets of symbols. Now there's the symbols come in this three of one type of symbol, like three faces of the six, two faces of the six and a die are another, and one is the rarest one. And each of these challenges will say, I want, I'll, you need to roll two of the easiest ones or one of the of the hardest one, wherever it might be. And you roll and you're like, you've either rolled it or you haven't early on. When you level up, you might get more dice or more ways of manipulating the dice or more automatic successes from kit and equipment that you gather. But the initial exploration is the most frustrating exploration in Skyrim. And you can be knocking around for quite a long time just going, I just need to find some rocks. If I can find some rocks, I can go down to my quest. It's the rocks that I need to mitigate the luck in that quest. I can progress on it. I can get some money, buy some decent, half-decent kit, and then I can start getting somewhere. And once you do start the ball rolling, and once you get enough XP to roll into level one, so you get one extra dice on certain types of rolls. So, for example, you can level up and be in one-handed for, for fighting, or you can level up in your speech skills, or you can level up in particular types of spells. That now you've got four dice instead of three. Now, oh, look, there's a speech quest out. I'll go and do that. 
because I've got the speech and I've got more of a chance and suddenly I'm feeling a bit more control of what's going on. It's kind of thematic. You're alone in the big wild world. You're getting knocked around. It doesn't necessarily make for the best gaming experience until you start getting a bit more control over it. Vindication is the one that's got a map that's got nothing on it at the beginning of the game. And it's wide open. And when you explain the game to people, no one wants you to explain all these tiles that could possibly be in play. So people can feel a bit lost and a bit like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. It doesn't take long to suddenly, this comes out, that comes out. That's how you can get more of that attribute. And by more attribute, I mean put two cubes in this pool, they count as blue intelligence. That's all it is. It's just resources, really. But we'll call them attributes. Why not? The game board will develop, though. And every time you move, and you must move every turn, every time you're adjacent to an empty space, a new hex will come into play. Now, it is a, it is a pool in the base game, a pool of hexes, which after one play, you'll remember everything that's in there because a lot of them do very similar things. There are three inns where you can get companions, which every turn will give you allow you to get a basic number of resources and also will give you power every time you activate them. That activating them ties up some of those influence cubes I was talking about that allow you to do all the actions within the game. So it's the one that appears most wide open. It appears like I don't know what's down here. And it is important. The tiles are going to come out in a random order each time and they're going to make certain things more or less difficult. And you're going to judge whether it's worth chasing the more difficult things because at the end of the day, if I've gone after collecting relics and no one else has, relics score me points, everything scores me points in the game, but there's also a majority scoring for having the most relics at the end of the game. And if I'm doing what you're not doing, that's going to be worth some points to me. And it's very much watching what everyone else is doing, where they want to go, what area is important to them. Can I even chuck it? Can I take control of a space? Does it look like, for example, Rachel's going to go after loads of traits? There's only one space you can get traits in the base game. I'll take control of that. Yeah, you can go there, but every time you go there, I'm getting two points. And it's those little edges and watching each other that is important in Vindication. And each unveiling of the game will reveal its own story. You are racing in Vindication. And what unveils is very important of where it does unveil. The thing also with it is that every action you do improves you slightly now some things will fit into the synergy of, of little powers that you've got already and some might be slight outliers generally everything is helpful and everything will work off each other in a certain way and once you've got a few turns into a game of indication you should be starting to get an idea of okay i want that companion and uh, i don't fancy that face up relic so i'll take the one from the top of the deck and hope that it drops in and as my relics and my traits and my monsters all come together they're telling me this is what i should do and this is how i'm going to score points but i have to do it quickly because the game accelerates you become more and more powerful you have more companions you have more things you have more abilities and everyone's getting quicker and faster and the game is speeding up and it's becoming clearer where there are points to be taken and where the points are sewn up i'll look over there natalie's got four red strength cards man i'm not, I'm not going to catch that for the end game but no one's got more than one blue okay bang i'm going to go after that What's interesting is you start the game with two end game cards and they're just conditions that if anyone hits them, then the next round will be the last round of vindication. So it could be whatever. Everyone becomes vindicated. There's a thing you can do in the game by getting rid of all your potential, your, your rubbish cubes and getting them into influence and then having a certain number of points. It's, it could be that. It could be that uh, everyone's speed has got to level four out of five or it could be as soon as someone's got one card of, of every different colour. Whatever it is, 
as soon as one of those conditions is hit, we've got one round left and it will catch you by surprise unless you're the one that triggers it or you're being very, very aware. What's even more interesting is that there are four spots along the scoreboard because you're constantly scoring the points, like I said, every time you get something. And when any player goes past the first of those markers, another in-game condition comes out, which no one has seen before. And suddenly, oh, there's another way of finishing this game. And then, and it's not far along the track. <laughs> and then when the next one gets on curve, we have now have four in-game conditions and five and possibly six if we get to lots of points. And now you're looking at it going, whoa, anyone could end this at any time. So you have to constantly on the ball and be aware. And it's very much a game that gathers momentum and spins and spins and spins and spins and spins until it stops. And then we'll see who's got the most points. With Skyrim, like I said, it's got that similar slow start, but it is a lot longer. It's a lot longer as a game. It's a lot more epic as a game. It's a lot more thematic as a game, but you will have a longer time of knocking around the place not quite sure where this is going to go until you slowly get it going. You're rolling and hoping. In WoW, this has been designed really, it feels like, to the nth degree. It's been really, really mathed out. And the only real sort of sense of, of progression and pacing that's in there, you don't get many special cards. Your character's powers never change. You don't particularly feel like you're getting more powerful as the game goes on. But the rate in which the ghouls come out will increase, as you'd expect. It's like, you know, the uh, infection rate in Pandemic. And that's what creates the pacing of the game. And it does start to get more and more and more frenetic. And if you're not aware that this game is going to accelerate really quite quickly and become quite tough quite soon, and you sort of mess around a bit at the beginning, you're going to be caught out. You're behind the curve. And there is a curve. There's no way of catching up in the game. There's no curing the yellows so when I go there, I can wipe them all out in one go. There's no having the doctor that can just walk through and cure everything as you go. You don't level up. The ghouls never get any easier to remove. Yes, more of them start coming out, but you're not any better at removing them. So the game is driving all the time to say, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Bang, it's over. You don't have many quest charges to quest, so you have to maximise them. So... Wrath of the Lich King definitely feels more frenetic and more pressurised than a normal game of Pandemic. Now, what I think the very best games of and versions of Pandemic do is allow you, in a small way, to create a bit of a story and, and a bit of memorable moments. I'm not sure you're going to get that out of Wrath of the Lich King. There will be tight dice roll sometimes but even the dice rolls are sort of it's not a wild swing in what you can roll on there and there will be tight moments in the game in fact most games i've played have been very tight and really down to like a ghoul or two left in the pool and can we make that last jump on the final quest in in the citadel that creates tension i'm not convinced it creates story and narrative moments that you're going to remember with vindication how much of a story there is is really down to you and how much you want to get into the sort of the theme. It can be played purely mechanically, and it can be played as like, I'm just collecting three of these and two of those, and, and that gives me four more of those. But they've tried hard to give you something to latch onto and sort of make you a specialist. You know, there are relics that will allow you to teleport around the place. And you'd be like, well, right, I'm the teleporting dude that, that fights monsters and then jumps back to the inn and then fights monsters again, and that's what I'm going to do. All that while you're playing a Euro and you're scoring points and you've got a strategy... But you can sort of coat it on there. What Skyrim does is 
Undoubtedly, story is the centre of everything in Skyrim the Adventure Game. I don't know the lore very well at all, and I'm aware that a lot of that passed me by, but I think I know enough of it, and certainly I think I've experienced enough games to be able to say that that story seems to be fantastic. I got the Skyforge working. What does that mean to me? Not a lot. Am I aware that it took me several quests over several chapters within a campaign in order to do that, so it felt like a real achievement when I did it? Yes, I am. Is it something I've remembered? I did not know the name Skyforge before I started playing. Do I remember it now? Yes, I do, because it felt like something that I'd done and I worked towards. Do I remember the stupid quest where I was just taking packages left, right, and center, and back, and over, and across, and back? And why am I doing this? Why am I carrying packages? Why is it filling up my inventory? And in the end, I got a bunch of money I could spend in the market and go, yes, this is cool, this is worth it, all this time. Now I'm superpowered by being a postman. I like that. If you can get into the story in Skyrim, it's all there for you. And that's another thing they've done very, very well, is immerse you, not mechanically, but narratively into what's going on. And you do kind of feel like you're in a living, breathing world where stuff's going on around you. Like I say, you can't do all the quests. You're going to have to prioritise. And certain quests will drop off. Now, if you drop off the root of a quest or you drop off quest two in a system, there's no way of getting it back in again. You, you don't know what happens with that. On the next playthrough, then you might be able to pick it up again and then you'll be turning the same story and same chapter into something slightly different for you because you can follow different narratives within it and you're going to get different random encounters and you might draw different cards and what have you. But still, the story has always made sense to me and it's always pulled together. And when you hear like there's two campaigns, three chapters each, you're like, oh, is that that much content? I actually think it is. And I think it's replayable. And I think it's replayable through the same stuff and you're going to have enjoyment. Although, of course, the major story points are going to be as they were. In terms of replayability vindication basically is a 60 minute euro and the fun there to be had in it is the race and the different combos those combos are not endless there are certain parts you're going to go down there's only certain sets you're going to attempt to collect what they've done is they've put lots of modules within the box which puts different hex tiles into play so for the moment i can say that each game i've tried to do something slightly different but i don't feel like there's endless possibilities with regards to that I don't think it's endlessly replayable. At least they've made an attempt. And when I get to the modules, if they mix it up and add a bit more depth, then we could be going from what I'll tell you now, I think is a good game into a very good game. This is where Wrath of the Lich King falls down really for me because it feels very same paced, not just within a game, but from game to game to game, the challenge feels very much the same doesn't really matter too much to me where ghouls are coming out. In Pandemic, where something is and where the cubes are, if you've got two cities next to each other that are likely to explode and overrun, you've got a problem because they'll start, you know, knocking each other, boom, 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 and you'll just have cubes in an area and they'll all be exploding with each other and you'll lose the game. Because in Wrath of the Lich King, you, they bring out these bigger ghouls that come after you. As long as you deal with them, there's only three possible. If there's more than three ever comes into the game... You know, if you draw a fourth, you've lost. But as long as you deal with them and knock them back into the pool, it's not such an issue. And also, they don't trigger off each other. So it's much less important spatially where the ghouls appear. And the pacing of how often they come out is very set as well, meaning the challenge is very set. And the tightness of the game means you, 
you're never going to get miles ahead of it and you can fall far behind. So when you're doing well, a game which you're doing well feels very much like the last game we did well, feels like the last game we did well. And the final quest is always in the same location with exactly the same challenge, requiring the same sort of cards to help you do it. You roll dice, you can add cards depending upon who's there, same as any other quest. The Lich King is always at the quest for the final one. If he's in the area, as well as fighting in the area, if he's in the area of a quest that you're trying to do, any other point, he'll give you a whack. But it just felt the same every time. And once I've seen it and done it and won it, is there enough there for me to go back to it? And that's one of the reasons that puts Wrath of Lich King as ranked for these games third for me. I think it's decent. I think it's a tough challenge to take on trying to improve on a classic. This is definitely a variant, and we've seen variants over the years of different types. There's much more constraints upon what you can do in Wrath of the Lich King, but also there's more random. And there's a lot of dice rolling, which obviously mitigates the randomness. The more dice you roll, the more you're going to come towards the mean. However, it's often, if you're playing well, a very close finish. And when you're talking about one or two ghouls left in the pool, or one or two steps away from completing that final quest, over the course of all those dice rolls, I can't actually point out where I won or lost it. At some point, maybe I threw a card away I shouldn't have done or to move to. I don't know. So it then feels difficult to really learn or focus on different decisions because there are so many variables all the way through a very straight road that really I'm just kind of shrugging my shoulders and going, well, we kind of won or we didn't there. I didn't feel massively in control of it. So it all feels a bit frozen and rigid and not enough for me to really enjoy getting my teeth into again and again and again. I enjoyed playing it. It's not a bad game by any means, but it's not going to be coming back to my table. Or if it does, I'll play, but I'm not going to choose for it to get back to my table. Bit of debate for me between the next two, which one was going to come in next. I chose Skyrim to come in at number two. The thing with Skyrim is it has some bits of an absolutely amazing game. The quest system, the story system, that dungeon system I was raving about are all absolutely fabulous. If I knew the lore, I am certain that this would have been my number one game out of these three and would be a fabulous game for me because I really enjoyed it. What I did get frustrated with was the same mechanisms. Every single turn is move, roll three or four or five dice. Move, roll dice. Move, roll dice. If you can enjoy the time together and enjoy the story, then you're not going to worry about that too much. And you're, you can sort of, as you get better, you can mitigate it. But at the end of the day, it is quite monotonous mechanically. There are some component issues I didn't mention before, which are just ridiculous. It's like they've done, we said this a few times, they've done the hard stuff really well and they've done some of the easy stuff really, really badly. To save the game, you put stuff into boxes your resources that you've got and your money and stuff like that. The resources, whether it counts as one or three or five, is written on it. It's the same size, it's the same color, it's the same everything. It's just written on it. Only if it's one side up, it says one. If it's another side up, it has a three written on it. Brilliant. Until I put it into a box and I get it out next time. What what do I Is that 18 or is it six? I I don't know. I can't remember. That's that's poor. Nowhere near as unforgivable as the horrible, horrible rulebook. That was a headache to learn 
And like we say from someone who's been playing games for a long, long time, you've got a chance there to get a brand new, huge audience in. And it was such a big misstep from Modifius. Honestly, someone get hold of that rule book. They, they need to send to every person who's bought that game a simplified, clarified, clear rule book that just tells you the structure of the game, which at the end of the day is mechanically very, very simple. But still, a fabulous effort on Skyrim. So that leaves Vindication. Now, it's not a perfect game for me. I need to get into those modules. It's a bit of an odd duck. I've gone from bafflement with it, with regards to the theming and the what's going on here, and this seems to be very dry, to pleasure, because it's gone from sort of, this seems to be just wide open nonsense. I've got, I've got two strength, yeah, whatever. I've got two inspiration. All right, I get a companion. What do they do? Give me more, more inspiration. All right, fine. To then playing it and getting to the end and realising, hold on, hold on. This has been cutthroat. You've got three green cards. I've got two green cards. There's that thing over there. If I spend three of my wisdom, I can grab it and it counts as two green cards and I've taken all those points from you. And it's going to be pretty tight between players that know what they're doing. Or even if they don't, it's going to be pretty tight. You're scoring points all the time anyway. But focus scoring of points, being aware of what everyone else is doing. Like, I basically won last time because I grabbed crucial areas that people wanted to use. And that drip of points was basically what won me the game. Now, in choosing to do that... I didn't collect as many cards as some other players did. So I missed out on those scores and I just about, it was worth it for me. But you're making decisions all the time and it's always in relation to the other players. Is this worth my investment of time and effort? Is it going to give me an edge on the other players around this table? And those variable end game conditions that you don't know what they are when you start playing. I know that could sound like an absolute nightmare to people. I'm going to assure you it means you have to be on your toes all the time. It means that all the time, the game state has to be as favourable to you as you can possibly make it. And you cannot drop the ball. And you cannot plan for in 15 turns time. You have to have a long-term plan, but also you have to be short-term, but I'm still doing well now. The game won't end immediately at the beginning. It can't be 20 minutes long. But it can creep up on you pretty quickly. And that's what keeps Vindication fresh for me. It's the interaction, it's the cutthroat, it's the pacey nature, and it's the fact that they didn't drop the ball on anything. It's got nice components, it's got ridiculous over-the-top managers that don't mean anything, but also they've put a lot of effort into making this a quality product. So my number one of this little pit fight is Vindication. move on to the second mini little pit fight off the episode and this is three smaller games and it's going to be a quicker run through trust me the three games are siege of valeria is the first one from daily magic games designed by glenn flaherty it's a fantasy themed tower defense game with a grid of enemies siege engines and different sort of monsters marching in columns onto your fortress of five turrets they come in five columns and you're going to be rolling dice and then using them to defeat the monsters. And every time you defeat a monster, you get that card, and it's got a little mini power at the bottom of it, which will allow you to get more dice or mitigate them or sort of burst attacks or ignore the attacks of those siege engines that which are constantly rolling towards you. And the key to it all is, as well as trying to keep your wall clear every turn, you're trying to defeat this stack of siege engines that keep appearing again and again and again towards the back of the ranks, 
and you are very pressurized in time because there's a certain amount of time you are going to fall because you're going to run out of supplies. So you're constantly trying to keep the flames from burning down the walls while being aware that the end goal is to defeat all the siege engines which are creeping up on you. The second game is Reckland Run from Renegade Game Studios, designed by Scott Arms. It's part of their Solo Hero series. This is a dice allocation game set in sort of a post-apocalyptic Mad Maxi sort of a world in which you have got a vehicle. There are seven scenarios within the campaign within the base box, and you're going to kit out your vehicle at the beginning of each of three rounds by rolling dice and allocating them to, to grab bits of kit, basically guns and things to make you better at ramming and things to repair you and mitigate dice. And then in the second section of each of the three rounds of each of the chapters of the campaign, a bunch of baddie cars basically are going to come out around you in the four slots, front, front, behind, left and right. And they're going to be looking to attack you while you're going to be looking, obviously, to attack them and clear them out so that you can move on and you can get to the end where there's a different boss for each of the seven chapters and defeat the boss. The third game is called Stellarian. It's from Inpatience Games. It's Shadi Torbe. And many of you will know just from knowing that, that it is set within the Oniverse of Onirim originally and then Arion and Castellion and all the other ones that may be out there. Stellarion's a bit different. The other two have both got cards and dice in them. Stellarion is just a card manipulation game in which you're trying to expose the correct set of colours and symbols to be on top of these eight decks of cards each turn to be able to collect them and score your points with them. If you can't collect the correct set of symbols at any point, you're going to have to discard cards. But every time you discard cards, although you obviously you're whittling down your options, you also have a special power that you're going to be able to do in order to help you manipulate the decks and the discard piles in order to set yourself up to get the correct combinations that you require to win the game. So, starting off, first impressions and the rule book, Stellarian looks ugly. Now, Sean's been saying this about Universe games all along, and I've defended them here and there, depending upon which ones they were. In this case, it, it, I don't think it's meant to be pretty. <laughs> it really isn't. But the rule book is a book of few pages and few words and you are off and running and you are playing the game. The only problem I had here in order to play the game, which is a simple set of rules, so you know it kind of feels a bit classic-y, it's very abstract, but slightly confusing symbology to separate some of the modules which are within there. I think there's four modules that you can add into the base game separately or together. I've only added one so far, so that's as far as this review will go. But in and playing, very quick, very simple, that doesn't mean it's a simple game to win. Okay. Siege of Valeria is much more striking when you look at it. It's got the artwork by, I know he was called the, the Miko. Uh, he is his full name now. It's the guy from um, all the West Kingdom and the North Sea and, and many other games. So it's artwork that you'll recognize when you see it. It's got good symbology. The components are all high quality. It's not an expensive game either. The rule book is slightly wordy. It's slightly sort of thick paragraphs. It needs a little bit of pulling out. The odd sort of little rule here and there, you have to go back and find it, but it won't take long. And generally, once you've played one game, you're rolling because all the rules make sense. And although there's lots of different cards in the game, there's champions you'll unveil when you defeat siege engines, there's siege engines, there's monsters. 
they're all summarized at the back. So there is a very good appendix. So you don't have to put loads of exceptions to the rules within the rules themselves. It says, here's the rules. It's not that hard. If you need any worries about a certain card, we've explained it at the back. And they have. So that's very well done. For Wreck and Run, not good. Now, the rule book itself, the structure is not perfect. It's bigger issues than that. It's that the rules are poorly worded and inaccurately worded. And for any sort of technical manual, that's not good enough. But as well as that being that, there are changes of terminology within the rule book where something is called something in one. So like there's a damage card or a destroyed card. But they're the same thing. We know we're gamers. That doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in certain games. Damaged and destroyed, two different states. No, no, no. And there's damaged cubes, by the way. So something can be damaged and not destroyed. It certainly will be. That's not okay. And that's not the only... There's incomplete symbology. And by that, I mean they've actually left certain components with just hashes on rather than the symbols that are supposed to be there to tell you what the actual thing does. So if you refer to anywhere, these hashes aren't anywhere. They were placeholders for printing that weren't taken out before it was sent to the printers. In order to play the game, it's not that hard to work out, but it is super, super shoddy that they have put this in. It's it's a pretty simple game. The FAQ up on BGG, which uh, TC Petty the third, who I think is a fantastic designer, he was a lead developer on this game. He's answered, I think, 51 questions so far, and they've stopped it because they're like, this, is, this document's getting too big. They just need to do another rule book. And that's not okay from a big company like Renegade. Change the terminology, misprintings, it's just laziness. It's just someone not doing their job. So not a great start. Let's get into the actual heart, I think, of a solo game is going to be the challenge of it. Obviously, you're there to challenge yourself and try and achieve something. And whether it throws up any surprises and senses of achievement. Now, Rickman Run works the hardest at this because, as I said, it's got this campaign. It's got seven different chapters, and for each of the chapters, you open an envelope, and it might give you a new skill for your driver. It might give you new parts that go into the deck. It might, it will give you new enemies that join the enemy deck and a new boss. So you're thinking, cool. Each of these campaigns is going to feel, each of these chapters in the campaign is going to feel unique, and I'm going to enjoy the difference to it. Nah, this is unfortunately the sameest of the games. It's got the two phases of wrecking and running. You outfit out your car, and basically what you're looking for is what does most damage or what heals. Or finally, you can put these spikes around the edge that let you ram all the cars next to you, so you do damage, which ignores shields. Now, your guns are often getting stimmied by shields. So there's this sort of throwaway mechanism of uh, you can use uh, any dice to do a ram if you want to. It does damage, and it moves them around your car. Yeah, I was doing that a lot. <laughs> there are eight dice you roll. Five of them are white, and three of them are red. And every time you use a white dice, because these parts will cost you dice allocation, every time you use the white ones, it's safe. But if you use the red ones, then it's risky. And it's the same when you go on the run as well, that you roll these white dice and red dice, and the red dice will trigger off the, the baddies, and then there's the white dice. But at that point, the parts that you've put on your vehicle, once you put a dice on it, that, that part is activated. So if I use my big gun at the front with a five, I can't use it again, right? Wrong. Every enemy that I kill, and there's very, you've got six, seven, eight, nine, ten coming out each round. Each enemy I kill to an exact amount of their health. Now, these are small numbers, easily manipulated. I get it as a piece of wreckage, and it counts as a die. Not only does it count as a die, 
but it counts as a die that doesn't take up the slot when it's been used. And I can use it when that slot's already been taken. So if I've shot my big gun, you go, that's a one around. Great, that's my big shot. No, no, no. If I get the right wreckage, I can just shoot it again and again and again and again. And I'll tell you what I'm doing if I'm not doing that. I'm using my dice to ram because ramming is so handy because it ignores those shields. So I'm just... That tightness of the game is completely removed. There is a tipping point that at the beginning of the round, you're in a bit of trouble. There's lots of cars... Especially if you've not gone to the third run yet, your own vehicle is a bit rubbish. So until you get to the point where you can start killing things and getting the wreckage, once you start getting wreckage, you can use it to get more wreckage and more wreckage and more wreckage and more wreckage. And the challenge starts to really dissipate. So there's no surprise in the campaign and the arc within each game is it's not great. Now, I'm, I'm coming down hard on this here. I know I've just spent five minutes slating it. To get to the tipping point can be quite fun. It's not completely without thought, but once you get there, it's sort of like, I know I've got to work this out. There's still a little bit of a puzzle here, but I'm kind of confident I'm going to work it out. Siege of Valeria, you roll your pool of dice, which, as I say, uh, can be added to as you defeat monsters, and they're split into sort of normal damage and magical damage, and different monsters require different combinations of them. Then... Any siege engines which have rolled down the column and got into range and they all have different ranges is going to attack your towers. And if your tower, any of your towers ever takes four damage, then you've lost the game and monsters basically pull through and overrun the castle. And if you run out of time before you defeat the whole stack of 13 siege engines, then uh, you've also lost the game because basically you've all starved. With the dice, you're assigning them to the enemies and you're taking the cards and you're using them. And every time you defeat a defeat engine, you're getting a champion, which will give you a slight sort of boost to attacking monsters, or you can throw it away to remove one damage from the turret it's been assigned to. And all the time while you're looking at this, because you're getting powers as soon as you kill a monster and you take that card, you can use it immediately. The task has got multiple routes to success. And it's about for you choosing and plotting your own one out. And it's tough. And you will be wondering about, should I do this or should I do that? Should I take this one? Should I take that one damage? And by Because any monsters you leave in the front rank are just automatically damage your turrets. But you need to concentrate on doing those siege engines. You're going to run out of time quicker than you think. But if I do the siege engine, this will get its third fire and I'll nearly be dead and then something will go wrong. And there's a lot of moving parts. And it's constantly shifting and changing and trying to look ahead as well because you can see how close the siege engine is going to get to you and you actually control it to a large degree. You're like, hmm, should I push it that far? Because if I kill these two, that will come in and then that will hit me. But will I be able to deal with that next turn? A lot of thoughts. Much more thinking and much more moving parts to Reckland Run, despite the fact that's about cars moving and the cars are constantly circling around you. And it should be more of a problem, but it doesn't really ever matter in Run where they are. In Siege of Valeria, the spatial aspect is very important and how you manipulate that. With Stellarion, the challenge just grabs you by the throat because you're there immediately and you've got to be on it from the get-go. So there are four colours of cards and there are four symbols of cards and there are eight decks. Black deck will have two copies each of the black planet and black hole and star and galaxy is... It doesn't really matter what the themes or what the games of them are. You've got a black, a blue, an orange, and a purple deck, and then you've got a planet deck, which you've got two of each colour, which are all planets, and you've got a star deck, which is two of each colour, all stars in it. And you flip over the top card. You're trying to get four of the same colour with different symbols face up on top of their decks at the same time. 
And immediately that will become apparent to you that that was pretty tough. It is, but you can either take four at once that match that and score one of the eight points you need to win the game. Or you can discard two cards that have the same symbol on them and whatever the two the symbol is will give you a special power. And if you discard two cards of the same colour with the same symbol, the special power will be boosted. And that's going to allow you to do things like shuffle cards back into their deck or reserve cards on top of the deck and put it to one side in what's called the observatory. So they're waiting there to be joined later on. Or it might allow you to look through a deck and actually put a card on top and say, that's the one I want this turn. So you're always looking at the discard piles, what's available. You're looking at what you need. You're looking at what cards are currently on top of decks. Well, I've got three blues out already, so I just need the, the blue planet. So maybe I can do something to the planet deck to increase my chances or be sure of getting the blue one out. Bang, those four are gone. I scored that point. I only need two blue points. If I get another blue point, I can then start burning blue cards in order to give me special powers elsewhere. And almost every flip of a card feels important because it does dictate to you what your options are. And you can decide to give yourself lots of options for actions, but you're going to have to narrow down and attempt to score points as well. To be honest, after a few games with that base game, uh, not you know pretty good win rate, so I'm all right with it. So I decided to throw in the first module I mentioned it. That puts black hole cards in each of the decks, and they're useless to you unless there's four of them available, in which case you can immediately score three points but you've now got to score 13 points to win and they're clogging up and they're clogging up the actions you can take and they're clogging up the combos you can make and i found they've made it much much harder uh, and a bit more random actually in the manipulation of what you're doing so i'm going to take that one out i haven't won with black holes yet i've got close twice uh, one, one set away but i'm going to take that one out i'm going to add another module in i think to try and freshen it up again but the fact those modules are in there and just the first one has mixed it up so much and i've had to change my tactics and the fact that you're always sort of changing what you're doing for what's available to you stellarion has really kept me on my toes the thing with the black holes adding the randomness is that Stellarion, I much more enjoyed it when I had more control. With Wreck and Run, I didn't have that feeling of the tension of the, oh, should I do this one? Should I do that one? It made little difference to me, really, what enemies were around me. I wasn't like, oh, no, it's that enemy. Oh, no, it's this enemy. I was like, well, <laughs> they're all pretty close to each other. Where the harshness and the randomness came in is where things can do direct damage to your core. So the bits of your of, of your vehicle, it's a three by three grid. And the outside ones, if they get destroyed, it's not the end of the world. You can sort of redo them. You can repair them. You've got chances. Once they are destroyed, then any damage that will go to that area will go directly to your core. And you can never repair that. So you're very aware of it. And that's a lot part of your sort of where you manipulate where enemies go and decide to put a cheap bit on your front right wing, for example, because it, it just it was all some damage. I'm not going to use it very often, but take some damage. There are certain mechanisms in the game that don't damage directly to your core, and that just feels incredibly tough. No one's going to remember this, but there's a thing in Xenoshift I hate in the base game that you're fighting these enemies, you're trying to mitigate, you're trying to stop damage, and then certain cards come out and just do damage directly to the base and go away. And I'm like, that's not, that's not part of the game. That's not a combat. That's just... I may as well start... If you make me start with six left health, that will be less annoying than you taking six off automatically. It happens on occasion in Reckland Run, and that's the sort of randomness that I don't really get on with. With Siege of Valeria, there's much more moving parts, and it feels more chaotic, but I don't feel like that sort of randomness comes up. 
It does. Where siege engines are, which siege engines come into play, but there are always ways for me to mitigate it. So if there's a really bad siege engine that's got a long range and would put be putting two damage on my turret every time, there are monsters I can kill, which allow me to ignore that attack. Now I've a limited amount of them, so maybe I should hold them back for if I think bigger problems are coming. But I am making a decision based on the probabilities whether I want to do that or not, so I never feel completely out of control. The last thing really I'll talk about with regards to three of them is theme. Well, Stellarion has no theme. Forget about it. I said that already. Siege of Valeria has gone easy street. It's chosen the fantasy theme. We know fantasy theme works with absolutely anything. You can put any powers on and it will work. So that's cool. But I mean, yeah, it doesn't feel like you're in a siege and things are attacking you and you've got to prioritize stuff. Yes, it does. So it does that quite well. It does create the tension and chaos well. Reckland Run, oh man, I'm kicking Reckland Run. Honestly, it's not that bad a game, but they've tried really, really hard to give you theme for each of these stories. There's two problems with them. One, you're doing terrible things all the time. You're bowling in somewhere and nicking stuff from people and then like acting like you're some kind of cool dude trying to get away with it, aren't you, aren't you the business? Not really. The point in which I stole someone's dog, all right, it's not a very nice person, but I stole their pet dog. No, what would I take their pet dog for? That's no use to me. Why would I do that? Uh, then you got to add in they're really, really badly written. I mean, badly written. Uh, I don't know what creative writing. Of course, someone went on, but they need to go back to it. You don't have to put an adjective next to every single noun in your sentence. Uh, anyway, not great. Not pulled in. Didn't feel thematic. I didn't feel like I was racing. I felt much more like I was sort of a tank or a turret or maybe a tower, I hadn't thought of that, that was static and these things were moving around me and I was shooting them as they moved around. And it mattered more where they were rather than where I am and I'm racing. and Like I'm not taking different routes. So there's like some canyon cars that pretend you are, but it doesn't feel like that. Um, you're not, it doesn't feel like I'm taking different routes. It feel like I'm accelerating or slowing down to manipulate spatially. There's things you could do in which make me feel like I'm driving a vehicle that haven't been done. So I think fairly clearly, Wreck Them Run, was my least favourite of these three games. But despite all the kicking, it's okay. It just plays too samey, despite all the efforts. So uh, the idea of playing the six chapters in a row, that is a really bad idea. I would play them spaced out. I think I'd be happy to put this aside for two or three weeks, play the next one and go, oh yeah, that was all right. And then leave it and then play the next one. Yeah, that was okay. And get through the seven and then be like, do you know what, I'm done. I kickstarted it, so I've got an extra campaign to go with it. Whether that gets played or not, we'll see. Really, though, Renegade should be ashamed of themselves because it's a very, very poor effort on the stuff they're supposed to be doing. So inconsistent, shabby, poorly written, I mean, clearly not completed before sent to the printers. They are so inconsistent. Renegade game shooters. I don't know who's in charge of quality control, possibly doing the worst job of anyone in the games industry. Because it's just terrible. It's just not good enough. You're a huge company to send an unfinished product to the printers and then send it out to your backers. No. Stellaria and the Siege of Valeria are both keepers. And they are, in fact, my two favourite games of the whole episode. Stellarion is about control and thought and probabilities. And Siege of Valeria is fun and frustrating and it's tough and it's varied, and you never quite know what you're going to do next because you've got to react to what comes down. Probably I should be better at it to see what's coming next. 
in the end, Siege of Valeria is going to edge out Stellarion for Game of the Episode by one singed goblin's whisker breath. Just takes it out. We'll see what the modules for Stellarion do to it. Turns out, I didn't know this when I bought Siege of Valeria, there's a campaign thing which adds in Dukes and Commanders and some kind of campaign stuff for Siege of Valeria. It's supposed to be very good and mixes up the challenge a bit. I'll throw that on top of that. And who knows? You might be hearing about one or both of them when we come back to review in 2022. Thank you very much for joining me. We are once again members of the Dice Tower Network. If you look up Dice Tower Network, you will find loads of board gaming podcasts. If you head to dicetower.com or head to YouTube for Dice Tower, there is a channel there, I'm sure you're aware, that has got a plethora of gaming content for you to enjoy. I've been watching top 10s today while I've been doing other stuff of 2013 and most anticipated and what have you and enjoying them greatly. We are the Game Pit Podcast. If you want to get hold of us, it's the gamepitpodcast at gmail.com or check us out on social media. We're still not overly active on Twitter because we still haven't made our minds up about what's going on over there. Or you can head to our guild. If you are a guild member, by the way, by all means, post on there. I know we're not very good at posting on there. We're, we're, I can't even get Sean on the podcast, man. He's busy. I'm busy. But we will answer stuff if you put it up there. If you've got any thoughts or things you want us to play or omissions or inclusions, then, then head there. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time on the Game Pit Podcast. Music by E. Lonely boy.